So this is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We will read this corporately. Um, and in our church, our practice as we read Scripture, we like to stand to honor God. So if you're able, please stand as you are able and join me in reading Scripture. I will read the not bold text, and we will read together as best as we can the bold text. So let us uh, read the great words from the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to, this pur- according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have ordained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were seated with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this chance to study Ephesians, to learn more about your grace and your mercy and the abundance of it, Lord. We pray that you be with uh, Josh as he brings forward your message, Lord. We pray that you be with us, that we might be open to your truth. Uh, might, our, might our hearts receive your, your truth as, as it is preached. And please be with Josh that he brings forward your truth, Lord. Um, and we just thank you so much for this time. In your name we pray and thank you for everything. Amen. You may be seated. All right, we will be looking at that passage this morning, and I'm in a predicament, and that is that if I say something that just came to mind this morning, you'll think I'm looking at you, especially uh, I want to speak to the parents in the room. This has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about in Ephesians. I mean, I guess it actually does, but the sound of life in a church is children, is books being dropped, is kids being upset about something, or they want their drink faster than you can get it to them, or whatever. I, we had kids, I, I don't necessarily miss all of those days, but I do miss lots of those days, and we love that. So don't ever think that that is a concern we have. We're excited about the sounds of life in our church, that God is bringing people here. And those attitudes and things are a little bit of what we're going to talk about today, and how God is, is a part of uh, of all of this. So we're, we're always uh, happy to have you here, have your children here, have our, my children here uh, as we seek to, to understand God's word together. 
We've been beginning our uh, story or kind of journey through Ephesians. We started last week, as uh, Trent said, just an introduction, uh, talks about the main idea. We'll, we'll reference that again. Paul is writing to the Ephesian believers, the, the believers in Ephesus, and to others who will read his letter uh, about God's plan for God's people. Last week, we actually talked about God's plan for all time. And I think this is clearly articulated in Ephesians 1, verse 10, that plan to unite all things in Him, all things in Jesus. For today, Paul turns his thoughts from how awesome, uh, to how awesome it is to realize that we, we are a part of God's plan to unite all things in Jesus. But before we get too far along, I have a few questions like I do uh, sometimes, often, every time, I don't know, for the children. So kids, here's your question. Here's a tricky one. Does God love us? Yes, I hear, I hear mumbled yeses. Saw some nodded heads. I see an Indian chief. Something. Yes. Do we all agree? Yes. How do we... Uh, um, so how does his action show that he loves us? How do his actions show he loves us? How do we know God loves us from his actions? Okay, there's a reference to Jesus on the cross, right? We all know a little bit about that, maybe. The beauty around us. God gives us things around us. Nature, food, houses to live in, things that we can own. Like we are given, God provides for us what we need. And often he provides more than what we need even. He's abundant in his in his provision for us. So, how do we know, how, how does he know what we need? Does he just guess? Give us stuff? No. Yeah, he made it. He's God and he knows everything. He knows us. He sees us. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Uh, but like God, how do we show love to others? If we're going to turn this to ourselves, how do we show love to other people? By putting them first, seeing what they need, and providing those things uh, where we can. When it's something like sin or even not for rebellion against God, sharing the gospel with them. When it's somebody that's hungry, we can provide and share food with them. When it's friendship, we can listen to someone if that's the need they have. Like We can see people and provide for them in some ways, not the same as God, but in a reflection maybe of that. Our church website has something on it. Um, if you Kids, if you want to ask your parents to show you the website, that's fine. But there's, there's a section on it called distinctives. And it's just distinctives about our church, about who we are, who we want to be. And there's one of those that says, we see the need. And it says this. Let me read this to you. Service to others is the outworking of the gospel in our lives. God's love compels us to love others. We want to recognize others on campus, up at Culver Stockton, here in this community, down in Canton, or up in Canton, or wherever Canton extends to. Wherever we go, uh, we want to recognize others. We want to hear their hearts. We want to serve their needs, and we want to invite them into a gospel life, and a God-centered, into God-centered community with us. 
That's what we want. That's what our goal is, is to invite people in to meet those needs um, in loving them, in seeing them, and in, in providing where we can. At lunch or at some other time this week, uh, kids ask your mom and dad how they are seeing the needs of people around them. How do they notice people? Are they noticing people? And ask them how maybe you can help meet the needs of people around you, especially those who don't know Jesus. Today, uh, we can be assured that we are following one line of thought. When we look at Ephesians chapter, um, chapter 1, actually verse 3 through verse 14, we know we're following one line of thought because in Greek, that is one sentence. From verse 3 through verse 14, there is one Greek sentence. Now, English, to try and make sure we understand what's going on, there are lots of thoughts in that one sentence. But that is one frame of thought or line of thought that we have been given. So let's jump right in. We're going to jump right into verse 3. So go ahead and look to verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, notice that, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In this verse, Paul uses the word blessing several times, over and over. He hopes to bless God in praising Him because He has blessed us. That's great, right? But He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, where's that? Paul uses the pray, this phrase, in the heavenly places, five times in this letter. In the first three of those, uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, actually, Paul uses it for the realm of God's and Christ's rule. The place that God is, the heavenly places are where God is kind of in control. We could think like heaven. So sure, God gives us blessing from and through his control, his reign, his heaven. That makes sense, right? But in the other two verses or two times that Paul used that same exact phrase, Paul describes the location of the evil principalities and powers. The realms that they own or are in control of. See, what Paul has in mind is much larger than just God's blessings. Paul is saying that in Christ and through Christ, God has reclaimed dominance and control and power over all powers, even spiritual powers, even over evil powers. This authority establishes God's ability to bless his people with all spiritual blessings. So it's bigger than just saying God blesses us from heaven. No, it's, it's bigger than that. God is in control because everything is to be and is moving towards and is in him, in Jesus, because of what Jesus has done. For Paul, uniting all things focuses on God's dominion over the whole of creation, even over death. And God's dominion over all spiritual things, even where evil currently rules. This is bigger. Well, finally, Ephesians are very concerned about spiritual things and about spiritual power. And so we're going to see that as we walk along. We're going to drop it. Well, not drop it, but we're going to put that on the back burner for now. So if God has the right and is seeking to unite all physical and all spiritual things in Jesus, then we know that Paul is going to focus on, um, is going to focus in on God's dominion, not just over those things, but also you and I are a part of those things as well. We're going to focus, he's going to focus in on us, and Paul's going to highlight that. This dominion results in all spiritual blessings coming our way. God is in control of all things. Therefore, all spiritual blessings are at his disposal, and he has the ability to share that 
and wishes to share that with us. If you remember last week, we need to build on a truth that we saw when we looked at verses 9 and 10, just a little further down the road, I guess. Verse 9 says this, I'm just going to start there, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So here's our foundational truth today. This is the thing that underlines everything, and it's really what we talked about last week, in case you were here. Uh, But if not, here it is. God has a plan to unite all things in Him, in Jesus. This seems to be the key promise of this whole letter. God's plan is to bring all things under the will and authority of Christ. There's one thing that is important to know about God. He's not like us. When God makes plans... They get done. They are done. He isn't worried about his plan failing or falling apart. He's not like us and busy trying to figure out plan B. How do we make this happen? Why do they keep messing my plans up? That's not the way God operates. Today we're going to talk about the results or blessings of God's plan for us if we are followers of Jesus who are in him. That's the foundational piece. If we are in Him, then God has blessings for us. Paul doesn't just leave us confused at what those blessings are, because that seems nice, but what does it mean? Paul doesn't even leave us there. His massive sentence marches on to clarify what blessing looks like for us. We're going to see some things. Uh, I'm going to give you the blanks, and then we'll fill them in as we go. Here we go. I'll even give you the answers now, but I won't fill them in until we get to it. All right, so here we go. God, we are blessed that God saw us. We are blessed that God sought us. We are blessed that he has saved us, and we're blessed that he seals us. And no, I did not take that from someone else. I know you've not watched me alliterate anything before, but I was an English teacher, and I can do that. Do not expect it to happen every time. It just accidentally did. Sorry. But God s something us god saw us sought us saved us and seals us that's hard to say fast look with me at verse four and five look verse four and five even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with uh, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here's the first two aspects of our blessing in Christ. The first is admittedly a little bit inferential. I'm I'm getting it because of the rest of it, but... um, leads us to the second, so we're going to consider them both together, and that is that God saw us and God sought us. God both, if we are followers of Jesus, God saw us and sought us, and that's what Paul is suggesting. So, he saw us and he sought us. That's the past for seek. Notice the words in our passage. He chose us. He predestined us. These are not words of accident or adjustment. God is not just making things up uh, or working things out and is reacting to stuff. His part was completed, it says in our verses, before the foundation of the world. And that shows how in control God is. 
It's important. It means that nothing that you do is too much for God. He's not hoping that you don't mess up too much so that you spoil everything. He knew you and your, uh, and his choice of you was based on his choice alone. You hadn't done anything yet. Your value was not established yet. And that was when he chose you, looking at only his love and seeing you. When we reach chapter 2, uh, verse 8 and 9, we'll read about how our salvation is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. When we trust God, we can only look to Him in awe and say, who am I that you should see me? We can only look to Him and say, who am I that you would choose me? But it gets even better. We are chosen, it says, for adoption. If you aren't stopped by that a little bit, if you don't take a second here to think about this, I think you should. God knew you. He saw you. He had a plan for you, and that plan was to adopt you. He wanted to make you a member of his family forever. That sounds pretty good, right? Uh, it's, it's actually really good, and it's beyond our wildest hopes. The creator of all thing want, things wants you. It's really good. But there's another truth that you need to know. You are really bad. There is another truth that we need to know, and that's that we are really bad. Paul says in Romans 5.10, for, we we um, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. You see that? We were enemies of God. All of us. But as enemies, God saw us and sought us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. I mean, that's an amazing truth. God wants to adopt us, but that can't be a simple process if we are his enemies. People don't adopt their enemies. But we read this in verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through the through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. It says that in Him, notice those words, in Jesus we have redemption through Jesus' blood. This is more than just the blood Think about the Lord's Supper, which we will do in a little bit, that, that we take together each week as God's, uh, as followers of Jesus. We are meant to remember not just the blood and the body, but the whole sacrifice of Jesus. We don't only think about Jesus' body and blood. We are thinking about the, the death of a righteous man on our behalf, the, the death of a holy God on our behalf. That's what we're thinking about. Think about this. God came. That's amazing in itself. Not only did he come, but he became a man uh, like us. If God came, he would have had to interact with the world. But God uh, entering the world and living in this body amid sickness and death and violence and evil is beyond unthinkable. Most religions, I would suggest probably all religions, really can't fathom that. In Islam, this is the issue with Christianity. How could God, a holy God, do that? But that's exactly what Jesus did. Philippians 2, 6-7 through says it like this. 
uh, says this about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Then, so God came. That's amazing. But then, de- uh, then it goes even further. The story of Jesus goes further and that the death of God is really where we're headed. How can God die for mankind? To return to Philippians 2, verse 8, it says this, And being found in the human form, He, Jesus Himself, uh, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about the shock of this. We see the the disciples when they're uh, trying to figure out what's going on in the crucifixion time or just right after the crucifixion time. Like, this is shocking. Sometimes we get so used to talking about the truth of Jesus that we forget how amazing this is. I honestly don't know the answer of how this happened. I don't think we can fathom it. I I only know that this is what's been done. But this was done. Jesus lived. Jesus died in payment for sins even before I was born. I can only tell you what was applied to my life and has changed it completely from the time I was 10 years old and it continues to change me every day. Bit by bit. I'm becoming something new because of this truth. In Paul's reference to the blood here, we are meant to consider the whole sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is God come for us in our need. He came to love us out of our rebellion. He came, he lived life in a way that we are called to, but then he paid the price he wasn't supposed to. He paid our price. He paid with his life and his death, and that payment was made for you and me. The blood sacrifice of Jesus leads to the forgiveness of our trespasses, of our sins. This forgiveness is pure grace. We'll see that as a huge word within this book. Grace. It's something that we don't deserve. It's beyond our wildest hopes. So we see that God saw us in our need before creation. God sought us by coming to earth, living, dying, to make a way for us. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, God saved us. I could have written that clear. God saved us. If we are followers of Jesus, God did these things. But that isn't even all of it. Paul speaks of at least one more blessing. The fourth one here. Paul speaks of one more blessing for us in verse 11 through 14. He talks of our inheritance. Let me read verse 11 through 14 again. In him we have attained, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Notice the control. God who works all things to His will, predestined according to His purpose over all time. Paul's idea of inheritance highlights God's plan. Paul's... um, he says, he's saying this, God saw us, he sought us, he, in, in, he saw us and he sought us in the past, he saved us in the present, and then he seals us for the future. 
He seals us. Let me ask a few questions to help us to think through this just a little bit of what this sealing could mean. What is this sealing? This sealing, uh, it sounds like I'm talking about the thing up there. No. The sealing, the preserving of us, the sealing is specifically the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. So what is this, when does this sealing happen? It does matter. When did this take place? In verse 13, Paul tells us that this sealing, this preserving happens when the Ephesians heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and they believed. This shows that, that the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is the seal here, the thing that is sealing, comes when someone believes. The presence of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life is the surest evidence of their salvation. When you can see them constantly acting in godly ways and see them consistently growing in their love of and understanding of and in their faithfulness to the Lord, you are more sure of God's work in their life than at any other time. So what is the point of this sealing or preserving? The sealing seems to serve several purposes. First one, most practical one, is to show us God's proof of our belief in the salvation message of Jesus. Notice that verse 13 says that true belief in the gospel message results in the presence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. Sealing. Second, this sealing is a mark of possession. To some degree, God's people are sealed, marked off, branded. Um, Even some commentaries talked about cows branding. Like, I don't know. Are you branded with the, the seal of the Holy Spirit? Branded by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Are you marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit? This possession is both about connection, but also protection, protection and identification. We are God's. And he sets his mark on his people in the Holy Spirit. This is a comfort to us. This should be a comfort to us. God doesn't abandon his things. He doesn't forget them. I don't know, thinking of little kids again now. He doesn't forget where the toys are. He knows where you are. He knows you. He sees you even now. He doesn't abandon his things. And if you are his, he is with you wherever you go and whatever you do. And that should be an assurance to us. And third, Paul suggests that this is the guarantee of future inheritance before the possession of that inheritance. In a a way, it's like a down payment for something that you haven't gotten yet or received yet. When you buy a house, uh, you put money down. You give money down. You, you do this to show that you are serious. It shows that you're not going to back out, that you're going to go through with this, but maybe you need a little more time for whatever reason. The more you put down, the more the seller is sure that you're going to come through. They only have to wait, knowing that you are going to pay when the time comes. This is like, like, notice the word like, I highlighted it three times. It's like how, God, how it is with God. The major difference is that God doesn't back out. He is not going to default. We will get what He promises to us. In fact, notice God is giving, notice what He's giving as the down payment. This seal for the inheritance, the down payment is Himself. God gave Himself in Jesus to purchase our salvation. When we accept that, God gives us Himself in the Holy Spirit as proof that we are fully with Him in the Trinity and will be with Him in the Trinity for all eternity. He gives us the Holy Spirit as proof. 
Some scholars believe that verse 11 through 14 should be translated to suggest that actually we are God's inheritance in line with some Old Testament passages, uh, the idea of the Levites and even the whole of Israel at times being spoken of as God's inheritance. Uh, in this case, the Holy Spirit in our lives is like God beginning his redemption of us who are his special possession. So honestly, I didn't spend a whole lot of time searching books to try and understand which way this should go. Uh, I actually assumed there would be a bunch of translations and ideas on one side and few on the other, and I just go with the majority. But it's, it's way more even than I ho- had thought or hoped. All translations kind of take one of two stances, and it's way more even than I planned. But they tend to all have sort of a disclaimer, or if you get one with the footnotes or things, they'll say it could be this way. Whichever way they chose could be the other one. And you might see this as a big, big deal. If you want to talk about the nuances of it, I was like, okay. I thought about it, I looked at it, I've got some things that we could talk about, but, but for now, here's my reasoning for not spending a lot of time on it. If we are God's inheritance, what happens? He takes his inheritance to be with him, his special possession forever, right? But if he is our inheritance, then what happens? We get to go and be with him forever, right? We are his special possession or he is ours. Either way, we get to be with God. Let me suggest that they're actually both probably true to some degree. God has declared his love very clearly through the actions of Jesus on the cross. And the Bible is full of references of us responding to that love that's been showed to us by our love for him. The depth of our love, the depth of our obedience because we love him. But it begins in his love for us. Jesus wants us to be with him always. Do you want to be united in him that's the question for us are you ready for a deeper relationship than you've ever experienced for all of eternity because that's where this is headed that's what following jesus is like preparing for the deepest relationship with the god of the universe that beyond anything we can imagine does he captivate you like that So last week, we said that God has a plan to unite all things in Jesus. If we are God's people, Paul suggests that we are the recipients of that plan as God saw us, sought us, saved us, and seals us. So what do we do now? That's the question. I have a few application questions for us. And the first is this. Are you united with God's people in Christ? You might not think these verses are about the congregational church, God's people together, but remember that Paul's writing to an entire church of God's people. That's the point. Verse 10 highlights that God's plan is to unite all things in Jesus. This includes uniting us to God through salvation. But it also includes uniting us as God's people together in His church. This is much, much more strongly seen in later verses, and it's probably going to be an application for a long time in several of these sermons, because that's what God is doing, bringing all things together in Him, and that includes us as God's people. In Ephesians, uh, the Ephesians that first received Paul's letters are joined together to listen to Paul's teaching. They are being addressed and affirmed that the Holy Spirit is working in them. It's not usually an individual occurrence. We don't see the Holy Spirit really working in someone's life when they're never around someone else. 
No, we see them change as we are in relationship and in community. We're challenged to change in relationship and community. We're challenged to faithfulness to God and what we should be living like in faith and community and among people. So are you united with God's people? Maybe you are. Maybe you're part of a church. But it is likely that some people aren't. And if you're not, let's talk. Talk to me after church. Talk for a little while. Let's, let's figure out an opportunity for you to connect with God's people, what that might look like. Or even just be praying about what that could look like for you. If that describes you, please, please talk with me. Are you united with God's people in Christ? But then next, are you united to God in Christ? Are you united with Him? Because all of this doesn't really make sense unless you are. And so if you are, the answer might be yes for a lot of us, and that's awesome. Then the challenge from Paul comes like this. Live like it. So what do we do? Looking at this passage, we live for His glory. In verse 12 and verse 14, they have this refrain. To the praise of His glory. While this might not be the context of these verses, I would suggest to you that this should describe your life just as much to the praise of His glory. Do you live your life to the praise of His glory? Who are you living for? Are you living for yourself? Or are you living for Him? Do you think about your need for God's provision in Jesus? Do you remind yourself of the power of the Gospel in your life? Are you living like that if you're His? Next, live holy and blameless before God. Verse 4 suggests that God's desire uh, for us is to be holy and blameless. The entire gospel message suggests that Jesus is ultimately what makes us holy and blameless. That's true. Before God, we are in God's and Jesus' righteousness. We stand before God in His holiness, but that doesn't release us from striving to be obedient to Him. We should desire to be holy and blameless before a God who loves us this much. To do that, we need to make it, uh, we need to work at it. We all will need to open ourselves and our weaknesses up to other believers we will, uh, who are going to keep us accountable. We need one another to keep us accountable. We need to share with one another our struggles, not just our successes, although we're really quick to do that. Our struggles too. We'll have to work together to remove unholiness, remove sin from our lives. Live holy and blameless before God. If you are God's uh, as well, we need to live redeemed and forgiven in His grace. This is sort of the flip side of that holiness thing. We get what we don't deserve. We receive the benefit in all of this. Verse 7 tells us that we are redeemed and forgiven in the blessing of Jesus' of our God's horrific death and payment for us. Gospel says that we have failed. We need Jesus because there's nothing we can do about the sin that we've committed in our lives. We, uh, the sin that we do commit in our lives, the sin that we will commit in our lives, and that highlights the need we have for Jesus. We don't, we don't have to live, though, in shame and disgrace of all of that sin. We can point to it and point to Jesus who infinitely loves us. We can point to Jesus who has redeemed us. We are that loved. We can admit our failure And know that we are that loved. This love should change us completely. This love should cause us to love others completely. It should send us out to love others. We should see, care, and serve others as Jesus did for us. And finally, if we are God's people, we must live in our deposit of God's inheritance. I'm using 
words from the passage. <laughs> we must live in our deposit of God's inheritance as Paul talks about in verse 11 through 14. We should live with an eye to the future. We will completely, we'll be completely with Jesus one day. We'll live in communion with God. We'll be in heaven and with Him forever one day. That's an awesome promise. But the promise of us, um, for us with God, and of us with God, and um, starts actually right now. If you have truly believed in what Jesus has done, if, G- if God has changed you, you are thinking of the future, but you also have the Holy Spirit in you, working in your life right now. He's changing you. He is with you in all things. You are never alone, and you will never be apart from a God who loves you. So are you united to God in Christ? But maybe the answer is the opposite of that. There are some who could not say yes. They must say, no, that's not something that's ever happened to me. It's possible that you've never heard of Jesus in this way. Maybe you don't know what to do with God like this. Maybe you have questions. I would urge you to talk with me or one of the other members of the church after service today. Let's talk. Ask your questions. Let's figure this out. Make this the day that you would unite with God. Let me end with one final application question for us today, and it's this. Are you uniting all people in Christ? Notice with me the pronouns in verse 11 through 14. Like I said, I was an English teacher, sorry. Pronouns. In fact, Paul changes pronouns, uh, and the changes highlight something that we see more in chapter 3. But Paul says that we... He uses we in verse 11 through 12, and he's referencing himself and other Jewish believers. And then he moves on in verse 13 to you, which references the mostly Gentile believers of the Ephesian church here. And then in verse 14, Paul changes to our as his possessive pronoun, that that we have this together. We have God together. As I said, the unity of God's people is highlighted in chapter 3, but for now notice this. One group of believers, Paul and his friends, shared the gospel with others in Ephesus. Those who heard the gospel believe and are forever changed by it. Now they are marked by the seal of the Holy Spirit and are fully united with all of God's people in Christ. So what's the application? Paul and his friends were not just the recipients of God's action for us. We are not just the recipients of God's actions, but we're also participants in God's actions. We are part of uniting all things in Jesus. We, are, we participate when we share the truth of Jesus, of God, with others. We tell them what he's done. So who do you know that needs to hear about Jesus? If you don't know how to tell someone about Jesus, come and see me after the service. There are some easy tools. There are some things called the three circles, or I don't even know what the title is on the front cover, but it's over here. I can explain it to you. Or there's apps. There's all sorts of tools, and the tool is not the point. The point is the willingness to talk to somebody else about what Jesus has done. They need to know that they are lost and yet loved. They need to know that God sacrificed himself to make a relationship, uh, a way for a relationship with them. They need to know that God wants this relationship with them forever. It's the greatest news we can ever know. And the question for you and me is, are we going to share it with those other people who need it? Do we see them? And are we meeting their need? The greatest need anybody can have, the greatest need that all of us have, is our need for Jesus and what he's done for us. Our need for relationship with God. So with that in mind, let me pray for us as we move along. So, 
Let's pray. God, we ask you to help us to be faithful. Help us to see the awesomeness of your love for us. The awesomeness of what you've done for us as you have have seen us and you have pursued us. God, you've done everything necessary to save us, to be your people, to adopt us as your own. God, we thank you for that. God, you promise to be with us forever. And that begins, it's already begun in the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for these promises. God, help us to be bold to share it with others. Help these truths to affect us as a church that we may honor you in all things. Praise you for all things and trust in you in all things. Lord, may you be praised in our lives, in our hearts, in our families, and throughout this community. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.